Okay, I want to move on. I want to take up our series that I have been in the last couple of weeks, titled from a book, Lessons from a Sheepdog. It's a really big book. There's a lot of truths in this little book, and I'm excited about it. There's so many things that we can learn from that. So I want to pick it up again. This uh, book was written by a gentleman named Philip Keller. Philip Keller uh, passed away in 2001, but his book lasts uh, beyond him because he really knew the heart of God. So this is the third and fourth lesson I hope to get out of this book today. Um, and to catch everyone up that haven't been here, uh, Philip Keller was a young man at the time. This was a true story. And uh, he was a uh, cattle rancher from South Africa that came, or East Africa, I guess it was, that came to the United States as a young man. And because he couldn't afford to buy cattle, uh, he bought sheep on the sheep ranch that he bought in uh, Vancouver, Canada. And uh, when he got on the sheep ranch, he realized that he needed a dog to handle sheep. Sheep are different than cattle. He needed somebody to help him herd the sheep. So he couldn't afford to buy a dog. And what he wanted was a border collie. Border collies are bred to be work dogs. They're bred to be sheep dogs. They're a herding dog. So he couldn't afford to buy one, so he was looking in the paper, and he found one that was a giveaway. And this, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, this dog was in the city, and uh, it was a great dog, but it was in the wrong hands. It was in the wrong master, and the dog, therefore, did not do well in the city. The dog chased cars, chased bicycles, jumped fences, and caused all kinds of problems, and the owner was going to destroy the dog because it was totally out of control. So she put an ad in the paper, free dog, come get this dog. So the owner of the sheep ranch saw the ad, went to the city, got the dog, and brings the dog home. Last week we talked about the dog was being set free, set free to follow. And the issues with a dog that had been mistreated didn't know how to handle a good master. Everything that the master would do to help the dog, the dog would bite back at him and bark back at him and, and, and refused the help that this new farmer, this new sheep farmer was going to give to this dog. And so last week we, last week we talked about being set free and how that lass was the dog's name. Really, everything that was being done for her to set her free, she didn't realize the good intention. She just thought it was another bad master. And so she wasn't going to be abused anymore by this bad master, so she rejected everything that he was doing for her until finally it broke free, it broke through, and she realized um, that he wasn't as bad as, he, as she originally thought. And so today we're going to pick up the story and today we're going to talk about learning to trust. So she had been rescued from the wrong hands. She was set free to follow. And now she's going to learn to trust. So let me pick up the story there. And um, I'm going to start reading on page 21 of the book for those that have it. Or on Kindle, Jackie. For the first few weeks of our intimate acquaintance, Lass was like a highly strung musical instrument. The lightest touch of my hands upon her made her tremble with tension. So long had she been out of tune with life that it took the master's knowing hands a considerable time to bring her into harmony with himself. In her subconscious mind lingered the dark shadows of the abuse she had suffered in the wrong hands. Time after time I would take her into my arms just to hold her close. At first she could endure this only for a few moments. Then with a sudden leap she would bound out of my embrace, wondering if I really meant well. But when I brushed her thick, lustrous coat, it seemed to set her apprehension at ease. When I carefully removed the burrs from her body, she sensed with her acute intelligence that I truly cared about her. Even, she even learned to let me pull the angry wild rose thorns from between her toes. When the burning ceased, she would lick my hands in gratitude. In all of these intimate contexts, I began to discern that I was as much her servant as she was mine. God's gentle spirit showed me in vivid reality the enormous condescension of Christ, who in love and self-humiliation tends my human needs. The lesson I was beginning to learn is that God does indeed become our love slave. He comes to comfort, to heal, to help. He comes to be our ministering companion. In gratitude for his touch upon my life, there is born within me the desire to be his love slave. Or put it in the simple words of Scripture, we love him because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19 
The basic interchange of loving concern for each other was the bedrock upon which trust and confidence was built between this beautiful dog and myself. Steadily, she was learning what it meant to be set free into a new dimension of devotion to her new owner. She was discovering the stimulus of being essentially in the master's service. Too many of us have the wrong view of work with God. We look upon it as a grim bondage or a sort of serfdom. No, no, no. For when we really truly come to know his touch upon our lives and sense the sweetness of his spirit at work in our souls, we are liberated into joyous experiences of adventurous undertakings. So here it is. Lass is in the warming, warming up process. But she has a long, long way to go before she's really, truly comfortable. She is learning how to, to, to um, let this new owner touch her and embrace her and, and tend to her needs. You know, Lass is a working dog, and working dogs get into all kinds of problems. They, get into, they have to chase after these lambs and these sheep. They have to go through wild thorn bushes. They have to go through rocky crags, and, as we read about last week. And, and her coat would get all messed up and dirty, and, and the owner being a good owner that he was and being a good master that he was would tend to her and would take care of her and would comb her coat out and keep her healthy, keep her feet healthy. He realized that if she was going to be a good dog, she had to have a good feet. If he let her get hobbled up, if he didn't mend her feet, she would be of no value to him as a sheepdog anymore. So he knew that. So he had to tend to her. So we see that he really became as much of a slave to her as she was becoming a slave to him. And that's the relationship that we have with God. That God tends to our needs as we tend to his flock. That he understands that he must keep us healthy. He must keep us spiritually fit. He must have some responsibility to keep us vibrantly on fire for him so that we can then take care of the sheep that he has us to tend to. So then as much as I serve him, he serves me. And that is what a relationship is all about. He provides for our needs like the shepherd provided for, the, the, like the sheep herder provided for Lass's needs. And then as we begin to do this, this is what develops trust. This then begins the bedrock, as the author said, of trust, of beginning to understand who each other are, beginning to trust the man's touch, and then the man beginning to trust the dog as well. You know, dogs can inflict some damage. Dogs can bite. They can hurt. But he has to learn to trust her as the dog has to trust him. So it, it is at all, it is a good relationship. But yet, even at the beginning of this, the dog would be in the master's embrace for a little while and then kind of panic and run and bolt and run away from him because she didn't really, really know if it was really true. Was he really out for her interest or not? And she would run away until she came to her senses and said, oh, he's not that bad, and she'd go back to him. Now let me ask you, does that at all sound familiar in your life? Have you ever been to the point where you could get close enough to God only to feel like a little panic set in, like, wow, maybe I'm getting too spiritual. Maybe I'm getting too close. Maybe I'm going to lose reality. Maybe I'm going to lose touch with what it is to live, and therefore I have to bolt. I have to go do my own thing for a while because I, have to, I cannot be too spiritual. I cannot seem too emphatic. I cannot seem too in love with this Jesus, or I may become too unpopular with my friends. Do you see that at all? I've experienced it. Have you ever experienced that? But that's not the relationship that the Lord wants. He wants us to have a trusting relationship. He wants God. God wants to be my love slave, and he wants me to be his love slave. That's the basic elements of trust, that we learn to trust each other, and this begins the relationship. This is the building relationship of trust. Let's move on. Let's pick it up on page 27, Jackie. Amid the new surroundings of forests and fields, her Latin instincts were steadily being brought into harmony with the natural world around her. She was finding the role for which she had been bred, growing in the joy of living as she was intended to live, guided by my continual presence. Last gave me the distinct impression that we were becoming the very best of friends. She let me know that ranch life was a great game she enjoyed to the full. But the best part for Lass, it seemed, was just being with me. Now this is no small honor, for it places upon the one so trusted great responsibility. 
Her happiness was in my hands. Her contentment was in my company. Where before she had shied away from me, now by degrees she became my very shadow. This began to make an indelible impression upon my own spirit. Searching, stabbing questions came to me as my own walk with the Master. Was I conscious of Christ? Did I find life with Him an adventure? Had I become so fond of His friendship that it surpassed all other interests? Was the devotion I received from this beautiful dog any measure of my loyalty to my Master? In devastating truth, I had to admit my devotion fell far short of hers, nor would it even begin to approach her level of trust for years yet to come. So as we see now, what's happening is that there is a level of trust being developed between Lass and her new master. And we're seeing that there is a knowledge or an awareness of this relationship. But what we have to understand, though, is it's that the relationship is more than just knowledge. The relationship is more than just knowing that the dog is going to be well cared for by the master. The, the, the relationship comes when knowledge turns into a lifestyle. It turns into uh, my heart's knowledge. And not just a head knowledge, but now I am learning, I am moving past the awareness of the relationship into a true personal relationship. You know, and, and we, as the, as the culture around us, we are the American culture, and I've heard it said many times that Christians in America feel they're Christians just because they're American. Just because we grew up in a Christian country or were born in a Christian country that we're American. But that doesn't, or that makes us a Christian, but that doesn't make us a Christian any more than it makes me a car if I sleep in a garage. I could spend all my time in the garage, but I'm never going to be a car. I have to. The only way I'm going to be a Christian is if I accept Jesus Christ in my life. It doesn't make any difference where I'm born or where I'm not born. It's my acceptance of who he is. See, the demons even believe in God. The demons say that. I mean, James says it in chapter 2, verse 19. It says, you believe there is one God. Well, that's good. Even the, de even the demons believe that. And they shudder. At least they have enough respect in their belief of God that it scares them. The problem is, it doesn't, even, it doesn't even scare most Americans. It doesn't even scare most people that come to church and want to play church. They want to play. They say, I'm a good Christian man and I serve God, but yet I go live the life I want to live outside of church. And it doesn't even scare them. Wow. That scares me. It scares me to realize that that can happen to me too. That I have to understand that it's just not an awareness of who God is. It is a true relationship with Him. The question that the author brings, Am I conscious of Christ? Do I find life with Him an adventure? Have I become so fond of His friendship that it surpasses all other interests? These are some pretty direct and important questions for us to consider this morning. In his first question, the consciousness of Christ is more than just knowing that he's present. Knowing just is more than just knowing who he is. But it is, it is a, actually, it's a, it's a commingling with him. It's my spirit intertwining with his spirit. It's me knowing that I have to worship him in spirit and in truth. It's me knowing that I have to surrender myself. I have to surrender who I am and what I think I am and who I want to be. And I want to say, Jesus, I'm all in it for you. That's the relationship that he's so much after. It reminds me, too, of, of Psalms chapter 1. Verses 2 and 3, it says, But his delight, the man's delight, is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. See, it's the man who finds delight in the law of the Lord and spends time meditating on the law of the Lord that he understands that God has established some godly boundaries for him and that it's his responsibility and to his benefit if he lives within those godly boundaries. When I do that, when I live in godly boundaries, then my relationship with the Lord stays unfettered. Then my relationship with the Lord stays true, it stays open, it stays clean, it stays precise. It says it's there when I need it to be there. 
when I live a life of inconsistency and if I live a life of compromise and if I say, Lord, I'm going to play a little bit now because it's not, I'm not in church on Sunday, it's Wednesday, and I've got a lot of living to do before I have to get to church on Sunday again, so therefore I'm going to go play a little bit. What that does is that that breaks my communion. It breaks my relationship with the Lord. Not that it can't be restored again on Sunday or even that night or even that day, even that moment if you realize what's going on and say, Lord, what am I doing? Why, why would I say such a crazy thing as that? But yet, when I can keep the delight of the Lord as meditation on his word, that's what gives me a victorious life. Because I'm not confused then by what's right and what's wrong. Because I'm dedicating myself and I'm solidly planting myself. It talks about a tree in this verse. A tree planted by streams of water. A tree that is planted is not a tree that is wandering. A tree is planted. It is not moved. The wind blows against it. The storms come against it. And all the stuff comes against it. But because the tree is planted, because it has a firm foundation, it's not going to be moved. How many Christians do we know today that are moved from thing to thing to thing? Church to church to church, seeking for that one thing. If they would only realize, if we would only realize that the secret of the planted tree is not in its moving, it's in his setting his roots deep. Letting his settling where you're at, letting the roots dive deep into the word of God and getting your nutrition from the word of God right where you're at. You don't have to go to the next church. You don't have to listen to the next TV evangelist. You don't have to do that. You need to get into the Word of God. You need to get into the Bible and read the Word and let the Word of, the God, the word of God's Word fill you and just, and just give you nutrition that you so badly need. That will make you grow. That will make you be strong. That will give you a strong trunk. That will give you strong limbs. It will give you good leaves. And those good leaves will produce good fruit. And by the fruit of that, people will know then that you're a solid Christian person because you're not flitting around place to place to place looking for the next experience. No, you've decided to set down here, let my roots go deep and create and make good, solid Christian fruit. Amen. That's a good thing. That's a blessed thing. That is not a, that is not a bondage thing. That is not something that is a boring thing. That is a good thing. That is the way to live a Christian life in this world without regret. It's out without regret. And, and to live that, then we need to set up godly boundaries. And we need to not let the Lord know that God is setting up boundaries. And that is all part of learning how to trust God. That's all part of learning how to trust God. Let's go back to the book. And tw- bottom of 28, Jack. Over and beyond all this, Lass became a one-man dog. She would eat only if I fed her. She would drink only the fresh water I set before her. She would permit only me to put her intensive to pet her intensively. It was, if it was necessary for me to be away, she would go on a fast until my return. That explains Belle. Our dog's the same way. But I don't think she's smart. <laughs> she was, last, was unwilling to partake of anything offered to her by others, even my wife. This single-minded fixation was an integral part of her personality. It was a measure of her character. Above all, it was the core of our splendid success as co-workers on the ranch. For it was based on this unwavering fidelity that I, in turn, could begin to trust her. I could be sure that, that here was a sheepdog capable of great service as we learned to work together. The future of fair winds and the welfare of the flock would in large measure hinge on our mutual trust and loyalty. And if we are serious in our desires to serve the living Christ, we must examine carefully our relationship to him. Can it be said of me, he is a one-man person? Is my devotion single-minded, single-centered, and and concentration upon Christ? From whose hand do I eat and drink? Where do I get my nourishment and refreshing? It was from last that I learned the sterling lesson that God can only trust those who truly trust him. He gives himself in wondrous plentitude to the person whose single-minded devotion, love, and loyalty is given to the Lord. And because of this mutual trust, those all around are enriched and blessed beyond their wildest imagination. This is awesome. 
this is so cool that we get it here. That when, here is the thing, when I learn to trust God, he learns to trust me. Do you see that, how that works? When I learn to trust God, then God knows he can trust me. God is not foolish. God is not going to invest himself in the people that are foolhardy. God is not going to waste his resources on people that are going to waste their resources of God. God blesses those who learn to trust. God blesses those with spiritual integrity, those that he knows can handle it. God blesses those with financial blessings for those that he knows can handle it. God blesses those with spiritual eternal blessings for he knows those that can handle it. God is not a foolish God. And that reminds me, we're not going to take the time today, but that reminds me of the parable of the stewards. When God gave the person the ability to do something, God trusted him to bring back a return. That's what God's trusting in our life, folks. That's what he's asking for you and me today. What are we doing to bring back a return for Christ? He blesses us with all the blessings that we have, all the health and strength that we have, all the resources that we have, the ability to live and make good choices for Christ. Are we bringing back a return for him? Can he trust me? Can he trust you? Can he trust you with the goodness that he has for you? Boy, that is awesome. When we learn to trust God, when we learn to trust God, then he can trust me and he can trust you. And that is the beginning of the relationship of trust. Lesson three, got it? Learning to trust. All right, let's move on to lesson four. The delight of obedience. The delight of obedience. Page 31. The summer season, giving way to the lovely autumn days, Lass and I were caught up in great adventures together. Handling the sheep, running the ranch, guarding against predators were more than mere work. Rather, our life on the land was a joyous pleasure. It was from last that I learned the profound lesson of what it really means to please the Master, to bless God, to enrich the Spirit. His energies, her energies were given to carrying out my commands. This was not always easy, for she was no longer a young pup. A mature dog already somewhat set in her ways, she had to learn to obey. The lessons taught her were intense and uncomplicated. The words of command were short and to the point. Come, sit, fetch, stay, stop, down, right, left, and so on. They were spoken clearly, explicitly, without waste of syllables. By degrees, she learned the meaning of each. Steadily, she began to respond. Every correct move was rewarded with lavish praise and hearty approval. Strangers began to hear about this remarkable dog and would drive out from the city to watch her work with me. They would stand pensively at the gate, asking permission to see how beautifully she obeyed my commands. The most common comments that made, that were, that made were, she just loves to work with you. She enjoys carrying out your wishes. She finds pleasure in pleasing you by her obedience. So here is Lass and the sheep rancher now moving on in their relationship. They're both learning to trust each other more. And, and life is settling down now on the ranch. But yet there's still a lot of learning for Lass to do. As we found out the first day, Lass was two years old when he got her. And a lot of times by the time a dog is two years old, it's, it's, teach to, it's tough to teach an old dog new tricks. Right? How many here in your life would consider yourself an old dog? How tough is it to teach you a new trick? Yeah, it's tough sometimes. But if we're going to be effectively handled by the new master, we must, like Lass, be teachable. We must be willing to be taught the tricks of the trade of being a Christian. We must be willing to set aside our old bad habits of just being who I am. You know, and so often we just say, well, that's just the way I am. And we let ourselves off the hook because we say, well, God created me this way. He, God created you to be in relationship with him. He didn't create you to be unruly. He didn't create you to be stubborn. He didn't create you to have your own way. He created you to be in relationship with him so that you could have a worship relationship. That's how God created you. 
So for anybody who says, well, that's just who I am, that's a lie from the enemy. That's what the enemy made you to be. That's not the way God made you to be. God created you to be in perfect union with him. That's why we were created. So if you just think, well, that's just the way I am, you're listening to the wrong master. You're still in the wrong hands. That's a cop-out. That's an excuse. That's not reality in godly terms. So we have to learn to learn new things. We have to learn to learn. It's a hard thing to do sometimes. And what I get out of this so much in this little lesson is that Lass was willing to learn new commands. And obviously she did it very well because others would like to come and watch her work. It was an enjoyable thing to watch the sheepdog work. It was an enjoyable thing to watch the, to watch the dog run in the, in the, in the flock and, and hear the commands of the master to say, Stop! right, left, and watch the dog move around and, and guide the sheep. It was fun to watch the dog obey. Isn't it fun to watch people obey? Isn't it fun to watch people that are following Christ live a life of no regrets? Isn't it fun to live your own life with no regrets? Isn't it fun to live a life that is saying, Lord, I'm willing to listen to you. I'm willing to move. When you say left, I'll go left. When you say right, I go right. And I have to trust him that when he says right, I'm not going to run off a cliff. Understand, God's got a lot better vantage point of life than you do. He's got a lot better vantage point of life than I do. When I, God says go left, I have to trust him that it's good to go left. He says, I have a much better vantage point of your life. If you will trust me to go right, go right. If you trust me to stay, stay. Listen to the commands of the Lord and delight in the obedience. The other thing that we see out of that is, is you become a great witness to those around you. Last became a great witness. She became a great role model for all the local sheepdogs. <laughs> if there were other sheepdogs in the area, the sheepers should, they should have brought them to watch Last operate because she became a great role model. People would come to watch her work. Listen, folks. People are watching your life. They're watching you. Are you working for the Lord? Am I working for the Lord? Am I being obedient to my master? Or am I running my own course? People are watching you, whether you want them to or not. Whether you think they are or not, they're watching you. That's why leadership is not just being a leader, not just being a deacon, not just being a Sunday school teacher. A leader is being a dad. A leader is being a church person because people are watching your life and they're watching and they're wondering, what are you going to do? Which direction are you going to take them? Are you a pleasure to watch or are you painful to watch? <laughs> we all know the people that are painful to watch, right? And I'm probably one of those painful ones every once in a while. I understand that where I just can't quite get it. I can't quite understand that God wants me to do that. So I'll fight him against them and I'll do my own thing and I'll make my own decisions. And then I have to pay the bad consequences of them. And God is saying, you know what, just follow me. It's easy. My yoke is light. My, burden, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Just go left. When I say left, go left. So our relationship then and our Christian perspective with Jesus is a joy of obedience. And our quick response to hearing it brings both joy to us and it brings joy to the Master. Page 33. It became obvious to me that just as my will and wishes for this devoted dog were expressed in clear, concise terms, so likewise God's good will for me has been stated in simple, straightforward language in his word. God has not left us without clear instructions. His desires for us have been, very, have been articulated in unmistakable terms. His word is sharp, precise, to the point, and it is our humble responsibility to learn to respond to it. There is, a, there is among Christ followers the element of confusion in which people claim not to understand clearly what his intentions are. There really is no excuse for this. Any person who desires to know and do God's good will can find it stated clearly in his word. The basic difficulty is not a lack of comprehension on our part. The question is simply the most in, uh, is it are we going to un, uh, not yield our wills? I couldn't say the word. The intransience of our unwielded, unyielded wills. Boy, I should go to speech school. Most of us 
Here's the key. Most of us will not submit to the control of Christ. Wow. Most of us will not submit to the will of Christ. What I like about this little part here is that God is clearly speaking to us. Think about it. You're a parent. Dads, your dad's here now today. If you are going to, um, if you have the ability, better than I do right now, if you have the ability to clearly communicate to your son or daughter, would you? Or would you purposely confuse them with what you want them to do? I think it's an easy answer. I think we would communicate as clearly as we possibly can. God has communicated very clearly in his word for us. He's given us some very good guidelines, some very good boundaries. Remember what we said, young people, when, we, when the Lord says don't, what is he telling to us? Don't hurt yourself. He's not saying I want to take away your fun. He's not saying I want to make you a boring person. He's saying don't hurt yourself. I know what happens if you go down that road. And I'm telling you, don't go down that road because I know what, it's held, I know what it holds for you. So therefore, don't go there. Don't hurt yourself. I will protect you from that. So it's, it's God's very clearly speaking to us. And he very clearly uses his word for us. Um, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Let me read this in the message translation. It says, don't let it phase you. Stick with what you learned and believed, sure of the integrity of your teachers, while you took in the sacred scriptures with your mother's milk. Now, that's a little confusing. What that means is you learned early on while you were still suckling your mother's breast. While you were a young person, you were being taught the word of God. That's what Paul is talking to Timothy here. And he says, there's nothing like the written word of God for showing you the way to salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Every part of Scripture is God-breathed and useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the Word, we are put together and shaped up for the tasks God has for us. See, God's Word is very clear. And it's the ability to understand and see that is very good. See, God is not a God of confusion. God does not bring confusion. Who brings confusion is the enemy. The enemy brings confusion. He brings distractions. He brings confusing ways. Not, the, not God. God's instruction for us is very clear. And from his vantage point, like we've already talked about, he sees very clear for us if we would only learn to trust him and follow the path that he has for us. And when we see, first of all, that God loves us and his only intention for us is for our well-being, why would I ever want to do anything contrary to God's word? Why would I really ever want to go against God's word when I know clearly that he has my intention, his my best intention in his focus for me? But it's those boundaries. It's those boundaries that I come against all those times. It's, and, and it's those issues of, well, I'm free to do something. I'm free to do that. Why can't I do it? Well, Here's the question I have for you. Think about the times in your life, older person, that maybe you can think about, maybe younger person, maybe you haven't had them yet. But think about the times in your life that you purposely disobeyed God. Can you think of any? That you purposely disobeyed God? What was the outcome of that situation? What were the consequences that you had to face? Did the consequences of your actions put you in a better or a worse place. See, God is very clear to us. He gives us very clear instruction. The consequences that he has for us when we follow him are unregretful. They're, they're clear, they're plain, they're joy, they're happiness. But what about those gray areas? There are so many gray areas that we have freedom to do things in. When, what about those freedoms? What about that area? What do we do with those? What about those situations that the word doesn't seem quite so clear on, not quite so concise on? What do we do about those? Well, let me read a, let me read a passage of Scripture that Paul said to the Corinthians about this same topic. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, he says, Everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. So when I have this gray area that comes in, maybe it would be wise to measure it. 
maybe it would be wise to count the cost of it and say, you know, if I want to partake in that, I have the freedoms to do that. But is it going to benefit me? What do I see the risk of doing that? And maybe I shouldn't do it in the first place. See, this is where I think that there's a little bit of a test coming on our life. I think that God gives us tests sometimes to see how closely do we really want to follow Christ. How closely do we really want to follow him? Or do I want that little test to take me off course? Am I willing to get off course for a little test? Or am I willing to to stay the course because I see the better way? I have learned to trust God so much that even though it seems contrary to my feelings, even though it seems contrary to the seat of my pants, as a pilot would say, don't fly by the seat of your pants, fly by your instruments. Even though it seems contrary, I'm going to trust God with that statement. I'm going to trust God with that choice. God is not confusing. The enemy is confusing. If we're wanting to truly sell out to Christ, if we want to truly live according to the directions and commands that are clearly given for us to follow, then we will live and we will walk in godly freedom with no regrets now or forever. Do you see how important that is? No regrets now or forever. This is a blessing. Let me read on. The greatest delusion of any man or woman can come, ever can come under is the idea that it is a drag to do God's will. Just the opposite is true. Yet our old natures and selfish interests endeavor to deceive us into believing that it is a born bondage to serve the master. Part of this is associated with the traditional idea of serving God in fear. Sunday school lesson. Dick talked about it today. The use of this word fear through the Old Testament has, in mo- has most unfortunately left the wrong impression upon our minds. And it was last who brought me to a clear concept of its true meaning. This is really good, so listen to this. To fear with regard to God means to reverence, to hold in such loving esteem as to be afraid of grieving the one so admired. It's not a fear that God is going to hit me with a hammer. It's not a fear that he's going to be angry with me. It's a fear that I'm going to grieve him. Wow, it is I am so in love with God. I am so in love with my wife. I don't want to grieve my wife. That's living in fearful reverence of my wife. I don't want to grieve her. I'm not afraid of her, though she hits pretty hard. (laughs) I'm not afraid of her because I have a reverential fear of her. I don't want to grieve her. It's the same with the Holy Spirit. It's the same with God. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I don't want to grieve God, so I have a fear of God that I don't grieve Him. This was the attitude last held toward me. It had been built on trust and had grown gradually with the realization she could count on the consistency of my conduct and the credibility of my character. She had come to see me as more than just her master, but also her friend. We were fellow workers in the great responsibilities of running the ranch. Her loyalty was grounded in love. So to fear the Lord and to work out our salvation with fear and trembling is to fear him so that we don't grieve him. This is not a tough life. This is an easy life. It's a life of learning learning to serve God in a way that we want to serve him and make him proud. And then finally, it's living a life striving to live as close to Christ as he can for us. You know, I think sometimes people think that to be a Christian we have to be perfect. We can't be perfect. If we're perfect, we become prideful in our perfection. Pride goes before the fall. And we know that God hates pride. It's detestable to him. So that if I could be perfect, if I could live a perfect Christian life of my own ability, my first fall would be pride. So I don't come to Christ in a prideful way. I don't come to him in a perfect way. I come to him in a life striving to be as close to him as I possibly can live with a heart of quick repentance when I make a mistake. It's a life being so full of the transformation power that we spoke of earlier today that the Holy Spirit would, but flows through my life and he flows through me and I become, and I become a productive co-worker with him. It's a life that draws people to Jesus in my, as they see Jesus working through me as I live in truth and consistency. 
It's a life of living and enjoying every moment of living, being obedient to Jesus, as Lass was obedient to her owner. And then I think another good lesson that we hear is that Lass became trusted by the sheep. It says, The end result of this remarkable collaboration between Lass and myself was the enormous benefit that came to both the sheep and the ranch because of her behavior. Through her prompt, explicit obedience, the sheep were moved easily. They were handled through her swift, smooth actions with a minimum of disturbance. Just as Lass learned to love, respect, and respond to me, here's, really, here's the important part, so the sheep soon discovered that Lass meant them no harm, but was only carrying out the commands intended for their best interests. They learned that they could not outwit her, outrun her, or outflank her. Their contentment was to do what she wanted them to do because that really was the master's wishes. Wow, that's so cool. Because sometimes we think pastors are out to get you. Sometimes we think teachers are out to get you. Sometimes we think God's out to get you. When what you really understand is that they're just doing what they've been told to do. It's like the mailman brings you a bill. It brings you a, a bill that you can't pay because you've overextended your credit card. You open, the, you open the bill and you say, wait, Mr. Mailman, I can't afford to pay this. Are you mad at the mailman? The mailman is only delivering the mail. So don't be mad at the mailman because he gave you a bill you can't pay. Sometimes we look at it wrong and, we, and understand that when the hard words come, they don't come to hurt, they come to help. When Lass went after the sheep, yeah, she nipped at them. She might have bit their flanks a little bit. She might have had to just bark at them and scare them a little bit. But when they understood eventually that Lass's reason for there was to protect them, was to guard them, they began to trust Lass. And now Lass didn't have to bark so hard or didn't have to bite so hard. Maybe she could just pretend and then nip. And all of a sudden the sheep would say, yep, I know what that's about. I'm going to move on. So anyway, we just need to learn that God is out to help us, not out to hurt us, right? And so when we can understand that. So finally, the last lesson of this lesson today is, I think, one of the more important ones. And I think this is really cool because this is kind of gives me my heart. I confess here with burning shame that though this dog was a living, vibrant example of what it means to be obedient, my strong will was slow to learn this same lesson. Lass had a lot to unlearn, but she was eager and anxious to obey. At heart, what she wanted was my approval. This is a point that escapes many of us. We seem rather indifferent to whether or not our conduct meets with the master's approval. Do we really care what he thinks of our character? Do we really care what God thinks about us? How many times have you sat down and said, you know, God, what do you think about me? Do you care what God thinks about you? This is pretty big. As we conclude today, Jackie, as you prepare to come, there are so many areas in our life that we give ourselves to that really are impactful areas. And we invest a lot of ourselves into these areas because we care about them. What we care about, we do. Where we put our heart, our treasure is. That's what the Bible says. It says that you will do, you will work, you will go after what you care about. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So let me ask you a question. Are you spending more time worried about this life, what I'm going to do in this life, where I'm going to live in this life, how much money I'm going to make in this life, who my friends are going to be in this life. Basically, do you see where I'm going? Where is your treasure? Are you focused upon what's going to happen in this life, or are you laying treasures in heavenly places? Do you care about what God thinks of you? God's character, your character to God is very important. It's very important. Where is your heart this morning? What does it require to please God? Have you thought about that? What do I have to do to please God? It's not hard, folks. It's not hard. You please God when you do things that are obedience to Him. You please God when you do things that make His heart proud of you. You please God when you care about what He thinks of you. 
please God when we worship Him in spirit and in truth. We please God when we live a life of integrity and truth and understanding that life is not all about what I can gain here, but what I can lay ahead of me, what I can lay ahead of me for the rewards of heaven because every father loves to give gifts. Every parent loves to give gifts. There is going to make nothing Christ, there's going to make Christ no happier then the day you walk into heaven and he's got a whole bag of gifts to give you for the rewards that you've gained on this earth. When you go to heaven and he says, I've been waiting for you, Mike. I've been waiting for you. you put your name in there. I've been waiting for you because you've been so diligent. You've been so authentic. You've been so true to me. You've laid up heavenly things in store for you. And I'm here. I'm so anxious to give them to you. <laughs> that pleases the heart of God. That pleases the heart of God because he can't wait to bestow gift upon gift on your life. Yes, he can do it in this life too. And he is. We all experience that with regretful living. With joy, peace, happiness, the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentle, self-control. That's the blessing. That's the gift of God that he's given to us now. But he has so much more to give to us if we will just hold on and don't give up. Do you care what Jesus thinks about you? Father, I come before you in Jesus' name. Lord, I thank you for the lessons that this simple little dog is teaching us. I thank you, Lord, that we can glean so much from your word. I thank you for your concise and clear wisdom and direction that you give us. You are such an awesome God. You are so amazing. And yet you are so clear and you are so concise with us. Help us, Lord. Help us in the times that we don't quite hear right. Give us a clear Give us a clear perspective. Father, help me. Help me, Lord Jesus, to live a life of humility before you, a life, Lord, of honesty, a life of integrity, a life that is focusing you, a life that is putting you at the center point of my life, that puts you right at the center of who I am, of who I want to be, a life that trusts you. As I trust you, you trust me. As I learn to obey, I see delight in obedience. I see delight. I see joy. I see happiness. I see peace. I thank you for that, Jesus. I thank you for that. Just examine your heart just for a moment. And just see where the Lord's dealing in your heart with this. What areas can you improve on today? What areas can you do better in today? Amen. Ask him. Ask him. He'll help you. He'll help you. He'll give you that freedom. He'll give you that release. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Father, for your word today. Lord, I pray that it settles deep. Lord, like that tree planted, planted by streams of water, that our roots would go deep into the word of God today. That this message, that these lessons would sink deep in our hearts and lives. That we would gain nourishment from that. In Jesus' name. I have a three-minute video. Larry, if you'd run it, please. Go with this video in your, in, our, in your hearts today. In Jesus' name. My sweetheart, love you. Love you. Bye, Dad. Bye, buddy. I love you. Bye. Goodbye, Thank baby. You. All right. Y'all have a good day. Those are my kids. Abby and Hudson. And I love them like crazy. Something happened the other day that got me to thinking about dads and kids and God. See, I was going to have to go out of town for a few days. had to get up early to catch a flight. Now, I woke up before the alarm clock went off, and I hate that. Don't you hate that? And so there I lay in bed, desperately trying to go back to sleep to catch that extra five minutes that I so desperately needed. And then I heard footsteps coming into my room. It was my son. He walked up to me, looked at me. He just said, Dad, I love you. I said, I love you too, buddy. I said, you, you want to climb up here in bed with Dad? Yeah. And so my son crawled in bed with me.
just about that time, I heard this noise coming from our kitchen. It was a familiar noise, but it confused me because I didn't know why I was hearing it. So I was about to get out of bed, and my wife stopped me, and she said, It's okay, it's Abby. She wanted to make you coffee this morning because she knew you were leaving and you wouldn't have time to make it yourself. And so I laid there, holding my son, and listening to the sound of my daughter make coffee for me. A few minutes later, I heard the steps of her feet going upstairs towards her room. And so I got up and came into the kitchen. And there, sitting on the counter, was a cup of coffee with a little note, written on a post-it note, that just said, you can't make it without your coffee. I love you. It was the sweetest cup of coffee I'd ever had. But don't get me wrong, I, I could have made a better cup of coffee. I've been making coffee a long time. But that cup of coffee was made out of the love that my daughter had for me. And it got to me to thinking. I think, I think that's what God wants us to do. You know, so many times I've always thought about the things that I did for God as chores for Him or having to do something for Him or having to give to Him. And that morning I realized that there's something much more to it. God wants us to, to give to Him and to do for Him out of our love for Him. So I guess I'm asking you to curl up with God and tell Him that you love Him and make Him a cup of coffee. It won't be the best cup He's ever had. Come on. He created the coffee bean. But it'll be the sweetest. Because nothing means more to a father than what his children say to him and do for him out of the love they have for him.